and welcome to Women in Retail Talks, the podcast where C-suite executive women in the retail space share their stories of professional growth, leadership development, personal journeys, and more. I'm Marie Albajez, Senior Editor of Women in Retail, a membership-based community of executive women at leading retailers and brands. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Vanessa Barboni Halleck, the CEO and founder of Another Tomorrow, an end-to-end sustainable apparel company addressing the material white space for luxury quality. We're talking with Vanessa today about how she transitioned from finance into sustainable fashion, how she ensures that Another Tomorrow is really educating customers about their practices, and the biggest challenges that she faced when she was becoming an entrepreneur. So Vanessa, thank you so much for joining me today. Such a huge pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I really want to get started just talking about your background. I'm really curious where your mind was at. I know you took a sabbatical from 15 years in finance to study sustainable practices, and I guess that eventually led you to building another tomorrow. So I'd love to know what happened in between. You know, what did you discover and what what impact did it have on you? You know, the whole thing was such an accident. Um, As you mentioned, I spent my career in finance. I was focused on emerging markets. I was a a trader um, in fixed income and and ran a bunch of the uh, trading businesses there. Um, And, um, you know, I I really wanted to realign my career with what I thought was relevant for the future. And so my focus was initially on moving into sustainability and, and ESG specifically within finance. And when I took the sabbatical, it was actually, you know, ostensibly to do exactly that. And so when I was looking at, at sustainability, I was looking at a whole bunch of different industries and really trying to understand more deeply um, how they were throwing off all these neg- unintended negative consequences, negative externalities. And a lot of it was fairly familiar having followed the space for some time, but the one industry that just blew me away, first by my own ignorance, uh, and then by the magnitude and the complexity of the problem was fashion. Um, And I thought that it was truly the elephant in the room and that there was such an enormous imperative and opportunity for corporate leadership, especially as I looked at how far so many other consumer industries had come and how far behind fashion was. And so, you know, it was the first time in my life that I felt just incredibly gripped uh, to be a part of a solution to a particular problem. And it was as if I just couldn't unknow what I learned and and wanted to think about how I could bring my skill set uh, to bear. So what what was it, maybe a few things that really stood out to you about, you know, you said it was like this extreme complexity. Um, were there certain aspects of it that really stood out to you and, and made you think I have to do something? So it was it was so many things at once. And I think that was what I found so compelling, you know. Number one, we don't think about fashion as an agricultural product, but essentially is. It's either it's either an agricultural product or it's made out of something that's uh, petroleum based. I mean, there's some material science happening, but but by and large, that's the case. And so all of the same issues that are issues in other agricultural supply chains are super relevant in fashion. Um, And then the microfiber plastics piece is also a big issue. So you've got the sourcing challenge. Um, You also have this immense waste problem. So over 80% of garments going into landfill or incineration, you've got a massive waste problem that hasn't been solved, um, which can be solved through, you know, circularity and and business model changes and and thinking about clothing as an asset. And then you have this really interesting production issue also, where, you know, people talk about overproduction, but really it's misproduction. We're just producing a lot of the wrong things because the industry is so speculative. And so, 
it was just fascinating to me that you have a sourcing challenge um, that's really kind of like this thinking about like farm to table to kind of farm to closet, um, this material inputs and waste challenge and circularity. And you have this like business model manufacturing challenge that frankly other industries have solved like decades ago and just hasn't really been brought to bear. So it was all of these things. And, and, and at a time when, you know, consumer awareness and even awareness within the industry of, you know, really the, the extent of the issues was super, super low, which was such a big opportunity. So it was kind of the kitchen sink and the complexities was what really motivated me because I've always loved problem solving at the intersection of disciplines. And this was very clearly a massive interdisciplinary problem uh, that really needed to be solved. So tell me about the origins of Another Tomorrow. Like, how did you set out to attempt to solve some of those problems? You know, it's interesting. I definitely did not look at it initially through the lens of creating a brand. You know, that uh, the, the idea of solving a problem through creating more product is not, you know, super intuitive. But it was really when I, I studied a lot of the incumbents and, and just saw this opportunity for like a living, breathing case study that could sort of demonstrate that there were solutions that could be adopted at scale that felt really compelling. Um, but before deciding on the brand or the position or any of those things, I also really wanted to understand what had not worked. I clearly was not the only person to come into this industry and be motivated by being a part of this solution. And so I thought it was relevant to really understand what was the through line for the things that didn't stick. Um, and what I found was a lot of what hadn't worked uh, had overly relied on the customer being more educated and caring more than they ultimately did about sustainability and it being more of a first purchase filter than it is in any industry. And oftentimes that led to um, solutions um, that weren't scalable, either based on how the product was constructed, how the brand was constructed, um, the ability to speak to a wider audience and what the brand proposition was. And so interestingly, having after doing a big deep dive on the sustainability side and the, the first uh, two of the first two people we brought in were actually sustainability experts to really help us uh, understand practices. I did a bunch of consumer research around where was the white space in the conventional market, because I felt that in order to really develop a, a business that was going to be successful, you have to meet the customer where they are today and really understand their pain points. And so what we found through that research was that there was this big white space in accessible luxury. You had a disgruntled luxury customer who had this intuitive sense that they were overpaying for what they were buying. You had a more contemporary customer who really wanted to trade up in quality, but was faced with a massive price gap. Um, so you had you know, two big pools of customers that you could really serve in a better way. And there was tons of frustration around how third-party e-commerce was working. And so there was obviously, there was a real kind of latent demand for an in-house uh, re-commerce solution, kind of taking... BMW certified pre-owned cars and bringing it into, um, into the fashion space. And so Another Tomorrow was really built into that white space, uh, knowing that we could deliver value today without the customer changing at all, and then you know, demonstrate that that business could be done differently. So, so that was really what informed the, the positioning and then everything else flowed from there. It's so interesting that you said, you know, one of the biggest uh, misconceptions or pain points was that, you know, the customer's 
weren't being educated on what was happening or if they were, it wasn't scalable. But I think another tomorrow, you know, transparency lives at the heart of your products and you're communicating that to the customer. It's kind of the first thing they see. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, why that's important and how you're communicating that and and whether you're seeing change from it. Yeah, I think it came from a few different places. One is I think that we value what we understand. And, and there's a sense of, you know, people in part, I think have bought food better because they, they can understand the idea of like the food origin and the impact of it. And so it, it makes sense. And, and we wanted to really reconnect people with the origin and the process around their clothing, which really helps you, I think, appreciate that process rather than something just, you know, showing up on a rack. And so one was that idea of connection back to source and back to process has been so lost in this industry. Um, another uh, motivation for that was really normative change around how the industry communicates. You know, a great example of that is when you're shopping online, oftentimes, you know, country of origin just says like imported, <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of wild. You know, there, there are people in specific places working in specific conditions making our product, making product and, and they're invisible in the process. And so we really wanted to address that kind of normative change of how companies communicate and how consumers expect them to communicate. Um, so it was really kind of, and then the third, which has become more and more important is just, you've got to back up what you, what you say you do. You know, there's, there are very few standards and communication around sustainability in this industry or many industries and it's become increasingly important to say to to be able to back up what you say you do with with tangible concrete uh, data, and so that's kind of the the, the third component. But it's uh, it's something that permeates our whole cult culture and, and certainly how we um, operate commercially. What has the feedback been from the customers who see, you know, they're able to look at their garment and say, okay, I know where this came from. I know how it was sourced, that sort of thing. I mean, have you seen more and more customers interested in that? We have. And I think, you know, people's levels of curiosity and engagement vary. And I think that's totally fine. You know, for some customers, they really want to dive deep. Like, you know, tell me about the atelier, tell me about the farm, like, tell me why this matters. And that's, you know, embedded in our digital uh, products experience. Um, so some people really want to go deep. And then there are others that say, you know what, I really care about um, making purchases that are in alignment with my values and in alignment with change, but it's enough for me to know that it's there. And it's sort of just kind of a, a source of trust and uh, more than anything. And, and that's something that we've we understand and we we like to be able to again meet people where they are and 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 I think that uh, there's going to be a diversity of that. One of the things that we're really proud of and that makes me really happy is that you know a lot of people do come to us because they love the product and then they they learn through the brand and through their engagement with another tomorrow and that's something that I think is really exciting. Yeah. Where else have you seen this start to be done well? I mean, in the fashion industry, you mentioned, you know, the way that they communicate with each other, with their customers needs to change. Have you seen that change start to kind of permeate? I think it's becoming, um, I think it's becoming more commonplace. You know, there's a group of, of brands that I think really espouse these values and, and the more they lead, the more other companies, I think, um, can can see it as a model for how they can behave and, and consumers start to, they see the attraction on the customer side. So there's an incentive there. So we are seeing, I would say, especially over the last 18 months, uh, we're really starting to see a shift, which is 
which is super positive. Um, but none of this is easy. And so it, you know, it often happens kind of piecemeal. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit more about how you see the the state of sustainability in the fashion industry. I think I've seen a lot more um, companies start to come out with sustainability reports, resale reports, that sort of thing. So, you know, compared to when you started researching this and really getting passionate about it to now, have you seen some progress? And, and if so, where else do we need to go? So I would say there's the, the biggest shift is that this isn't a fad. You know, when we when we started in you know 2018 building the company pre-launch, there was still a sense in the industry of like, oh, that's that's nice, but nobody really cares and we don't really have to deal with that. Right. Now I think that there's an appreciation that we have to start to live within our planetary boundaries. And so we can argue about how much the consumer cares. But ultimately, this industry has to change. And there's an understanding that this is an imperative. It's just a question of how companies navigate to that future state. So I think the how varies, the urgency varies, but there's no longer this question of like, do we need to be doing this? Like we unequivocally need to be doing this. So that to me is, is the biggest sea change within the industry. Um, there was just a great piece that came out in Vogue Business that was you know, maybe uh, slightly less optimistic around fashion, uh, sustainability and fashion still being kind of stuck in pilot phase. And I think that's equally true um, that companies are kind of taking a little bit of a hodgepodge of initiatives to, to try and solve this. And there is a tendency to say like, you know, how can I make this a little bit better without fundamentally changing how I run my business? And that's, I think, where this next wave is going to have to happen. It's fundamental business model change is going to have to be a part of the solution and that's not easy but it, we're not we're not going to move very far without it yeah what i find so interesting is that you know you companies like yours started out with sustainability at the forefront of your values whereas a lot of companies are now having to kind of backtrack some really established companies that have been around for 50 100 years are now saying oh we have to get on board with this you have the advantage of you know starting from ground zero and making it you know part of your values from the beginning i imagine it's got to be a little bit harder for those more established ones to kind of go back and say what do we need to change Absolutely. Um, I have a, a good degree of empathy around just how complex these businesses are and how difficult it is to kind of, you know, steer that ship. Um, but I, I think that you kind of have to go almost like a blank slate of saying, like, how can we completely reconstruct this business? That doesn't mean that you change it overnight. But I think vision is really, really important because if it's just about, you know, how can I make the same pair of trousers in organic cotton instead of conventional cotton, you know, that's not going to dramatically change things. And it's going to be more expensive, right? So people's willingness to increase costs, um, you know, particularly in this current macro climate is gonna, isn't going to be there. So I think there's really kind of a, a reimagining of what businesses and business models can look at. And then it's road mapping to that vision. Whereas I think this sort of incrementalism is, is quite problematic and is almost harder because you end up doing all these small things that just increase costs, as opposed to saying, if you actually took a look at the whole model, it can actually be way more efficient from a capital perspective, from a risk perspective, from a profitability perspective. And you're not going to get there by making these tiny piecemeal changes. And so 
I see some companies really uh, starting to recognize that they need to have that, like, where do we want to be in, in 10 years? And then also setting up very, very concrete paths to that. And, and sometimes that's test and learn, but at least you recognize that there needs to be a more holistic shift. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about the beginnings of another tomorrow. I mean, you said that you were in banking and finance for a long time. What was it like to, to start a business? What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced uh, in becoming an entrepreneur? It was such a radical shift. You know, I thought that having run businesses on the finance side, that, you know, leadership and business building in another industry would um, at least mirror a little bit more what my historical path had been and nothing could have been further from the case. Um, so on the one hand, I knew basically nobody. So I was building my network completely from scratch, uh, which was a fascinating um, experience. And um, I was definitely uh, the least educated on the topic in the room at all points in time. And so I had to get really, really comfortable not having the answers and finding experts who did. And I can't, I think on a, on a personal growth level, nothing could have been healthier. You know, in, in finance, I felt like I had to have all the answers that like I had to drive the charge. And, and really it was such a beautiful moment to say, you know what? We need to create a team of people with complementary skill sets, with domain expertise. Um, everyone's going to be the smartest in the room on their on their specific area of uh, of, of expertise, and I am never going to be that person. And so that was really fantastic. And and so really looked for you know alignment, expertise, culture fit, and and built the business that way. And you know I had to adapt my leadership style a ton. Um, and I'm so glad that I did, but it was, it's, it's been a, a, a pretty remarkable personal growth uh, kind of path these last several years. Yeah. How did you, how would you describe your, your leadership style after learning all of that and building your network from scratch, as you said? So I, I have come to learn a lot about myself over these last <laughs> several years. And I would say that, um, you know, where I'm strongest is really on vision and strategy. You know, I, I know, um, I think I have an intuitive understanding of sort of the interdisciplinary solutions, where the, the where we can add value on a strategic perspective from a you know, vision, vision and mission standpoint and how to build a roadmap to really get there um, and then bring in the best executors on that basis. And you know that there are a lot of amazing strengths in that, and there are also some holes in that. Um, and so I've really focused on building, bringing in partners um, in our team that have really complementary skill sets. And I love that I continue to learn from them every single day. Uh, but that's um, that's sort of how my role has has evolved. And I was very boots on the ground at the beginning. I still love it in many respects. You know. I was on the farm and, you know, in the factory and at the mill and doing a bunch of the negotiations, like kind of everything but designing. Um, and now it's really exciting to be able to pass that off to, to folks who, who really have domain expertise and, and for me to be able to focus on sort of my superpowers. How do you build your team? I mean, what, how do you know when it's a really good fit? So we definitely look for you know, alignment in terms of the why of what we're doing. I think that's, that's crucial. Um, you know, this industry is a tough industry. Um, startups are always a lot of work. And so you've, you've got to be excited about where you're going. Um, but then we also, you know, culture really, really matters. And I think that, um, 
we have a, a culture of, of both candor and empathy. And that to me is, is really crucial, that level of trust and directness and communication, um, as well as a very sort of human perspective of, of really connecting with, with, with people and, and with the rest of the business. So those are some of the key characteristics that, that we look for. And it's, it's such a beautifully collaborative industry um, that, you know, I'm just, I'm constantly blown away by the talented and caring people that we, that we have brought into the fold. How, how big is your team now? Oh gosh, we've just added a couple more people. Um, we're probably around like 15, 14, 15-ish uh, full-time. And then, you know, a handful others um, on the on the part-time and, and freelance side. So we are a, a small but mighty and growing team. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so my last question was going to be, uh, where, where do you see another tomorrow heading, you know, by the end of 2023? Uh, we have a big, uh, we have a big growth year ahead. Uh, so we're just coming off of, of uh, doubling revenues in 2022. And it looks like we're on track to be roughly 3x in 2023, which uh, the reason why scale is important to us is that it demonstrates that this is possible. You know, it, it breaks this idea that uh, better practices are, uh, and innovative practices are niche, right? So scale is really important to our mission. So we're excited about that. We've become much more omni-channel. We're, we're launching with Metaporte this month. Uh, we brought on a whole bunch of new partners last year. And, and so there's a ton of scale happening there. We've got some really exciting supply chain developments happening and like just-in-time manufacturing, um, in addition to the regenerative ag push that we're continuing to make on our supply chain. And it's a big, big, big focus on circularity. So we launched Authenticated Resale in April of last year. We've learned so much um, and we're really excited about putting in place um, the right uh, framework for really accelerating growth in, in re-commerce. That's amazing. Yeah, I saw your resale uh, launch. So that's that's really exciting. Well, thank you so much for everything that you do. Uh, I can't wait to see the growth from another tomorrow. And uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information on this podcast, please check out our podcast channel page at womeninretail.com slash podcasts for show notes. Women in Retail Talks is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Make sure to subscribe on our podcast channel page as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a few moments to rate and review. To learn more about women in retail and become a member of this amazing community, visit womeninretail.com. Thanks, and until next time, this has been Women in Retail Talks.